Episode 293, The Rant. Arthur Lee Walker, Board 37 Certified Basketball Official, Top Official in New York City. Back in November, we chopped it up with Art to discuss his early life in New York City, playing with the best of best, playing with the best of the best in the city, his experience at Howard University, getting into officiating, and what he's learned during the pandemic. All that and more, my conversation with Arthur now. The Rant has been brought to you by Geo Studios, now open. They are located one block south of Westbury Train Station in the heart of Long Island, New York. Looking to bring your art or event to life? Trying to record a podcast? Enjoy six rooms of studio space to create audio and visual content. It also includes an 800-square-foot cyclorama wall studio, a state-of-the-art recording studio, three breakout rooms for four to six people each, which include a green room and lounges, a quality surround sound with six speakers and studio lighting, and most importantly, two on-site restrooms. You know I need my restrooms. Book your space today. For more information, find us at geoevents.com. The Rant has been brought to you by The Irrefutable Magazine. Co-editor in design Kevin Sparrick and co-editor at large Ralph Fernolis decided to combine both of their talents in writing and illustrations to bring to you a new online experience from an official's perspective. They both ref, but it's deeper than officiating. They create art for all time. Do you think your brand would be a good fit for The Irrefutable Magazine audience? Want to advertise with us? Visit us at theirrefutable.com sponsors for more information. We are the irrefutable. Welcome to another edition of The Rant. I'm your host, Ralph the Ref. I'm with a super special guest, and I'm live in Brooklyn with my roadcast. I had to lug all this thing, and we were trying to figure out where we we're going to have it, but we live in the crib of my man, Boy 37, basketball official certified, also a men's college basketball official. Uh, bike rider during the pandemic and somebody that has done a, a bunch of soul searching uh, during this whole time. Mr. Arthur Lee Walker, how are you, my friend? I'm good, man. How you doing, Ralph? Man. Appreciate you, man. Thank you for having me on the show, man. I'm outstanding, by the way, even during this time. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, I, I saw a lot of things that you were doing. I was like, man, that's good because, you know, I think you guys, especially all of my referee uh, fellow officials that are in the city, I don't know how that experience was because when you're in Long Island, everything has already been socially distant. You know what I'm saying? Like we always have our space and it was like, Oh, uh, right. There's just a lot of parking spots and we can already be distanced. Cause that's like how we lived. And, you know, I always thought about like some of my friends who lived in like apartments in the Bronx and it's like, mm-hmm. you had to walk to the grocery. Right. That must've been crazy. So, I mean, let's just go back to that time. Right. So mm-hmm. we're talking about March, early March, you know, we're, I'm, I know I was in the midst of my girls' PSAL schedule. I was doing college games on the, on the women's side. And, you know, it was going heavy. And, and I just remember one of my boys was like, yo, I, I got picked for this playoff game. But mm-hmm. then it got taken away. Right. And he was like, and you know how we do. We're like, hmm, what do you think? What do you think they, you think they did something? And <laughs> no, it was because of the virus that was incoming. Yeah. And then, you know, one day I remember I was doing an adult league game uh, out in Long Island. And they were like, yo, NBA shut down. I didn't know what that meant at the time. Mm-hmm. Little did we know that everything was going to be shut down. And that was probably end of how we knew it. So, and you know, we're in your apartment in Brooklyn, New York. And 
you talked about that you you just moved here like a week before, and that's interesting, right? It's it's like look how much passage of time has happened during that. So absolutely. First, I want to ask you, you know, how are you doing during the coronavirus? How's your family holding up? And what was the moment that you took all of this really serious? Well, first of all, I'm doing good um, at this particular time. Uh, my family is good. I unfortunately did have a few deaths in my family. Um, one actually not too long ago, um, a few weeks ago. And um, early in April, my uncle passed away as well. How am I doing? I'd say in spite of those things, I'm a fighter. So I keep pushing on and I come from a family of fighters. So we continue to push forward because we have a different level of understanding about uh, where we are right now in this lifetime. So we honor our family members that have passed away and, you know, we keep working hard because and keep pushing forward because that's what they would want us to do. Yeah. You know, so um, interesting. You also asked about moving in here. It was perfect timing. Might I say we had no clue what was coming. Right. And, but we were in the process of moving, mm -hmm. you know, and then all of a sudden, oh, we go to homeschool because we both work in the school system, me and my lady. So then we knew that, uh, oh, wait, hold up, schools are closing. And then games got canceled. Right. And then, you know, I was working at a men's league at Chelsea Piers. Then that got canceled. Mm -hmm. And then people started to get sick. And then you heard about people dying. Dave Edwards, Willie Mitchell. Uh, and then I was like, wait, hold up. Some deal. This, is, this ain't no joke. So then I got with my think tank, you know, my buddies I went to college with. And we just started to inform ourselves mm -hmm. and alarm ourselves about everything that we needed to do to make sure that we were okay. And um, we fought some battles with some people we knew were sick in terms of getting them things they needed to, you know, make it past this scenario. You know, alternative medicines and things of that nature from a special tea. You know, my boy's from the Caribbean. So, you know, when you're from outside the country, they always got some type of special thing for different sicknesses. You know what I mean? You, yeah. And so um, we just started to alarm ourselves and be informed so that we wouldn't move from a place of fear, but more so from a place of strength and being informed about how we can make sure we stay, you know, safe and keep our family safe if possible. So, mm. yeah, that's so deep. And, you know, I, it's crazy that you moved in here, which and I'm, I'm assuming that you were able to take all your furniture out really take your time. I remember at that particular point, I mean, I was watching CNN and not knowing what was going on. My, mm -hmm. my son was at home. Mm -hmm. I felt like the teachers were not there. They just gave me a packet of things that he needed to do. And then I started getting into like binge eating. Then I started playing Nintendo Switch with him. Then I started playing Super Nintendo with him. Right, right, And then right. I was like, yo, it's only like April 13th. Right. And like when is, and then my baseball schedule got canceled. Then my lacrosse schedule got canceled. Mm. And I'm thinking, man, yeah, my identity is different. Am I really Ralph the ref now? I'm running this website mm. and it's like, we're not refing. Yeah. And the first person I spoke to, I remember was Shanae Joy Jones. And when I spoke to her, 
I was like, so what are you doing? Uh-huh. And she was like, man, I just had to like, snap out of it because I was just feeling down and out of myself. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to learn how to cook. I'm going to learn how to do this. And, you know, she really gave me that inspiration to say, you know what? I can't, I can't let this website die. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I, I got a whole bunch of referee friends that are at home just like me. Let me check in. Let me check mm-hmm. in with them. And I think what I learned about myself during this whole time was like, you know what? I enjoy making websites. I enjoy making some art. And now I think about how much time I spend it. I don't even know how I was able to coexist with this website while I was reffing. Cause I felt like I was reffing mm-hmm. damn near every day, all day, everywhere. Yeah. What do you think you learned about yourself during this whole time? Well, um, I had to redirect my focus obviously because I was definitely on the grind of refereeing on a regular basis. I still had to teach though. And I had to teach from home. So I'm a phys ed teacher. So I had to, really think about how I was going to teach my kids remotely. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, when I had to redirect my thought process, you know, I I, I realized that there's some other layers to me that I was actually ignoring. Mm -hmm. And that was entrepreneurial. Even though I was an entrepreneur within refereeing and career-wise, but just an entrepreneur from a different standpoint. Mm. Um. So me and my friends, we formed an investment group. And now we're moving on doing different things and just talking more about money and empowering ourselves. Mm. And so I had time to slow down, right? Because I wasn't going and refereeing games every weekend and and like three or four days out of the week during the weekday, I just had time. And so with a lot of reading talking and just rediscovering some of my other talents and definitely informing myself more about empowering myself with money and investments and finances and things Mm. of that nature. So I just did a podcast recently and we were talking about this pandemic fatigue because what's interesting about in the beginning of that, we had 6,000 cases nationwide Mm -hmm. and everything shut down. Right. We learned how to live with, especially in New York, because everything was just wild for the night in the beginning. Right. Now we have like 90,000 cases. So it's way worse, Mm -hmm. but it's different, right? We have all been frustrated and and we know what it's like to have a mass and we know it's like, okay, 30% capacity, but at the the very least, we just like appreciate it much different. Mm -hmm. You know, with with that said, do you think you're going to be a person that when the pandemic is over, are you going to miss some parts of it? Is it going to be a situation where... Do you think that you're going to jump right back into reffing the way we did? Cause that's, that's a great question, brother. And let me tell you something. No, I'm not going to be moving the same. Me too. And the reason is because there's a fuller life. You know, I have really for the last uh, eight years, maybe even 10, I've gone really hard mm-hmm. in refereeing. And one, I wanted to be good. I wanted to get respect. It was always another level. It's a game. Let's, you know, ball is life, right? And that is real, but it's still a game. And, <clears throat> and there's so many other things in life that um, trump basketball. I love basketball, though. I mean, I can't never front on it. But there are other things. So I found another activity. Obviously, I know you mentioned earlier that I cycle and rob. 
And I, hey, man, I had to jump on that bike because I do like to be active. Mm-hmm. And being active is important to me because I chose a healthy lifestyle. You know, I teach phys ed. But I've always lived a healthy lifestyle. It's been so important to me. And, of course, that's important during this pandemic, right? right. Because in order for that thing to survive in your body, you might have a weak, weak immune system. Man, my, my immune system, I keep it up and keep it strong. And, obviously, through activity and athletics you you keep your your immune system up so i definitely cycle a great deal but i'm not going to move the same when things open back up i'm not going but i had to already try to start scaling it back because i care about my knees so (laughs) i used to go and do like man i would go do eight games on a saturday easy and then i go do another eight games on a sunday easy i chopped that in half to four. Moving forward, I might only chop that into two on a Saturday, two on a Sunday. Right. Why? Because I got to do other things. Mm. And I do need, and not to say, and and I'm not in the same pursuit of learning. I always want to learn, but I don't need to go that hard like I used to because there was a lot I didn't know that I know now, so I don't have to go at it in the same manner. I can actually scale back and then focus on those games that I do need to do and put my energy there as opposed to spreading myself so thin trying to go in paper chase. Uh, I got to use my my brain to paper chase in another way, and that's through investing, you know, stock market, things of that nature, Mm. you know, so... I'm not going to be attacking it in the same way. But when I get on the court, I still will be the same manager right, and right. the same focus, the same drive. I still have goals and, you know, want to move up in the college ranks and still do big games in high school or even in rec league. And I just love the game. So that's not going to ever change. But, you know, that's a great question, Ralph, because yeah. I have been thinking about that. Uh-huh. What am I going to do? Right. I actually had the question, you know. I feel the same way. And I know that I'm not going to move in the same manner. Yeah, yeah. I- I'll even tell you, like, one of my mentors who will remain nameless, he was like, are you okay with not reffing? And I'm like, what you mean? He's like, well, I don't even think you realize the thing that you're building might mm-hmm. afford you to not ref anymore. And I'm like, well, that's not really what I want. I still got so many things to accomplish. Yeah. And he's like, all right, well, what if there's like three sponsors that pay you $20,000 each a year. I was like, well, I probably wouldn't rap. <laughs> which, which leads me to say, you know, I think the pandemic for both of us has brought balance back in our life, right? Mm-hmm. Spend more time with my family. Most I enjoy definitely. the things. And, and just even just having that childlike wonder before I'd be like, you know, I'm going I'm to use, um, people didn't really bike ride as much in Long Island as they mm-hmm. did now. You know what I mean? Right. People weren't really using those rusted rims that they have to touch, right? <laughs> you know, and sometimes right. like, I'm like, man, I see a whole lot of new outdoor basketball courts in front of people's houses where before it would be like, yeah. this is the story of an eighth grader that moved away from their parents' house like 30 years ago. Yeah. And you could tell because of all of the depreciation, the, the torn and tatteredness of the weather inside out, winter, summer. And, you know, it's just, it was cool to see that childlike wonder from back in, when, in our era when we were growing up of like, yo, when you out, you out, right? Mm-hmm. And I'll come home at six and you yeah. just get lost in your thoughts. You're not, you're not doing your cell phone. But then, you know, now I think about it. Imagine we were going through this pandemic when we were kids and we had no cell phones. Oh, oh <laughs> right. That would have been a whole different monster. Terrible. Imagine that. Yeah. Yo, people would have probably been afraid of each other. I know. Because, 
you know, at, I'm not going to lie. At first, I was like, yo, when I walk down the street, I'm across the street. If I see somebody coming my way, hold up. You get a little too close, let me cross the street. I don't feel that way anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely well more informed and more educated about the whole scenario. And once again, you know, I know my immune system is strong. Um, we do know about the 99% survival rate for most people who have contracted it. Uh, so not to say that that discredits that the 200. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a big number. No doubt. Big number. That's huge, man. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been a, quite a year, man. Yeah, it's still not done either. <laughs> yeah, it's still not done, man. We, my boy Kobe Bean Bryant. Yo, first know. day, first day of, of January, mm-hmm. David Stern died. That's David like Stern. How, that's like how it was set off. Yeah. And it just was like tragedy after tragedy man. after tragedy. And you think about that, even now it seems like a half a year ago, it feels like generations ago, because there's been so many things that have happened. George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Jacob Blake, all mm-hmm. of those people that lost their lives. I know that city. That was the first time I remember. I'm watching CNN one day, and it's in April. This right. is when everyone's like, yo, I'm not going outside. Yeah. I remember they had this whole thing for Ahmaud Arbery, and I was like, yo, there's like 60 people. They bugging. Mm-hmm. But then you start to realize it's because of what they feel in their heart. And it's not so much a black and white thing. Mm-hmm. It's a humanity thing. Absolutely. Just want people to be treated correctly. Absolutely. Having said that, just what are your thoughts on all of this racial injustice that has always been happening? Um, Did you participate in any rallies? Absolutely. Talk about those experiences. I sure did. Um, Because I am socially conscious and uh, I've always been socially conscious. I, I have a daughter that's socially conscious as well. And me and her mother are raising her that way. And she comes from that type of family. So she wanted to go march. And I took her out there and we marched. And yes, we in the middle of a bunch of people. But I had already felt okay about being around people through cycling. You know, we would get together and do these big rides and we would get, it would be like 50 of us, 100 of us sometimes. And so we actually even had cycling Marches, yeah, kind of like if I you want, yeah. I saw so the we, story. So yeah, I would so we 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 would drive her. We were and you people chanting for us. But the thing about it, marching is okay. What we know is it's really the internal battle amongst people who have uh, uh, some input into um, being able to change the system, and that's where it really is going to come. Economics in you know, being able to change systems. The system has been wrong. Mm. You know, I, I, I went to Howard University. Uh, we always speak about things from a black perspective. We've always been informed. I marched in the Million Man March, you know, so I've always been informed about what's going on in my culture with my people. And... <laughs> You know, until there's some change, it's always going to be the same. I really believe Marcus Garvey was ahead of his time when he said we should, you know, go back to Africa or leave this country per se. And he seemed to be right because Mm -hmm. this country has not done us right. Right. Well, you know, since we've been here. So... 
we want we understand who's running the show, and uh, imagine that. Like they didn't even want women to vote, even their own women, even white women. They didn't want to vote. We know the old white boys club, you know, that has run this country for a long time, and we know based on our candidates for the presidency. Yeah. And you watched the debate? I did. I seen all of them. Man, when you look at the debate and you look at, wait a minute, we need to be a little younger. Yeah. No disrespect to my older folks. I have no, but I think we need to be sharper and younger, right? Regardless of what their views are, neither one of them are sharp. They've lost a little bit because of time. I need somebody sharper. Mm. That's me personally. I feel you. But I don't want to get heavy into politics, but nonetheless, I have always been aware about my culture and how we're treated here. And when I see them too, I still see an archaic way of thinking. And I need to see different colors. Mm. I need to see different um, gender as well. Women have been at the forefront of leading our families forever. Why can't they lead in other areas in life? I mean, come on, we know that. They've been the backbone. Right. And so it's good to see Kamala Harris. She's also at Howard University alum. And we share the same born day, 1020. <laughs> and by the way, happy I think I said happy 21st birthday to you. <laughs> Thank you, man. Yeah, you did. And I appreciate that, you know, because yeah, you know, I'm I'm aging backwards. Um, but yeah, you know, so Kamala Harris is also uh, uh an alum of Howard and uh a proud member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority, and I'm a proud member of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated. So we have some things in common, and uh, we're outspoken, and I'm outspoken as well, and I speak up for my people, and um, my mother always told me to be a leader and not a follower. But you do need to know, you do need to follow in order to learn how to lead. Always. So I did do that correctly. But nonetheless, um, I'm always involved in the struggle, mm. as you, as people might call it. I've always been somebody who has been aware. Mm. I like that perspective. And somebody from, so I'm Filipino, mm -hmm. and I'm not black or white, so I have a very interesting perspective on this because mm -hmm. I grew up with predominantly black people mm -hmm. up until my parents forced me to go to Catholic school because they thought I was going to go to jail. Okay. But, you know, truth be told, a lot of my elementary school friends ended up going to jail and died. So there was some truth to what they were saying. But when you were talking about just, you know, having your seat at the table, mm. why the community feels like they've been overlooked, mm. that they don't have a voice. I always say to, you know, my white friends, it's like, imagine if that there's two apples mm -hmm. and they have both of the apples. Yeah. And all we're asking them for is to have an equal apple. Yeah. I just want you to share the apple. Nah. Mm -hmm. I'm keeping my apple. You get no apples. Yep. That's just really how we feel. Yeah, not nothing even more, nothing less. That's it. Just a bite. That's it. And we and we shouldn't be just asking for a bite. I we know. should have our own apple. I know. You know, but it's not. It's. I know you might say, "Hey, well, you know, I'm not black." Oh, it's a. It's any ethnic group that's melanated are not treated fairly here. Mm. Any ethnic group. You know, when you go across, you ever drove across this country? Yes, I did. Yeah, man. Then when you, that's when you really see. Yeah. You drive, a, like we here in the urban area, 
this is a lot. This this where all the population is at. Let's right. let's by the water, right on the east coast, on the west coast, strong, but go to the middle America, in the majority of this land, and see what's going on. So very few of us. Different America for sure. It's a different place. It's scary too, by the way. I remember driving from Detroit back to New York. I was in Ohio. I was just coming from getting a new car in Detroit. And I got pulled over for no reason whatsoever. Didn't, wasn't speeding, was being extra safe, just got the car. By myself. I mean, I'm by myself in Ohio. Get pulled over. Man, the cop made me get out, go sit in the backseat of his car while he went to search my car. For what? I was like, for what? Why? Why? Oh, uh, there was somebody, we looking for guns. Coming out of Detroit. Gun trafficking. Oh, so you just decided to pull me over because of what? Other than the fact that you see a black man driving? I didn't. You didn't, you're not giving me a ticket for speeding. I wasn't swerving. I'm not inebriated. What's the issue? Why would you just pull me over? Seeing me by myself. Made the dog go into the car, sniff the trunk, all of that. For what? It's scary. Yeah. You know, and I've driven across the country once. Been through Oklahoma. Been through. I got stopped in Oklahoma. Yeah, they were like, been through uh, all of these. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, you realize, man, that we are... And as, you know, 13% or 13.5 or whatever the number may be, you know, we're a small number here in this country. And and I'm not talking about just black people. Mm. We're talking about people of color. Even though we dominate the globe, we are the minority here. And how they try to make sure and keep us separate. Because mm. imagine if all people of color came together mm. all not just black but all because we are the minority here and we need to have a more powerful voice yeah we should be the majority we should we should be we should and i have no i don't have problem with white i i, I don't like ignorance i'm cool with everybody i don't care what your color is which is interesting enough because you will have some people who will prejudge you based on how you look. Yeah. I don't, man, I grew up in a smorgasbord of people. I grew up in Flatbush, Brooklyn. We had all West Indian culture. I had Asian. I had people from Cambodia. I had people from different countries in Africa, Puerto Rican, Dominican. There was even some white folks, all in Flatbush. So I grew up around... All of them. And then, of course, sports dispels all of that. I played basketball. I had white teammates. I had white coaches at some point. I had to get along with everybody. Yeah, That's what sports does. It does. That ball is orange. That net is white. That rim is orange. You know what I mean? My teammate wears the same uniform color as me. That's what I see. I don't see... That that's my white teammate. I see that he's on my team. We both wearing blue. He's my teammate. Mm. And that's how I grew up learning. And so I didn't look at people that way. But I was always aware. Mm. That's good. And, you know, I just, I did want to tap into how you became socially conscious. And, you know, talking about growing up in Flatbush, 
a lot of your things got colored by just the unity that you get from playing sports. So in Flatbush, um, what else did you play growing up? What did you play in middle school, high school, and in college? I played baseball. Uh, first sport was boxing. <laughs> first sport was boxing. Man, my mother, we went to this gym, me and my older brother called Izzy Zerling, a youth center on Church Avenue in Flatbush. And that's where I learned how to box. Why? We didn't have a father around. You know, needed to know how to fight. This the the 80s. And you got, you had to know how to fight. It just was imperative for your survival. And so boxing was the first sport. And then after that, uh, baseball. My brother was real good. My older brother was all city. He was nice. But that was the sport I played. I played baseball for, since I was from eight until the eighth grade. Just before high school. Then I made a decision to just stick with basketball and not play baseball anymore. Where'd you play in high school? And did you end up playing at Howard? I played at Grady High School. Um, Never heard of it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> everybody know about Grady, man. We were dominant back in the late 80s, early 90s, mid 90s. Very dominant with the strong rivalry between us and Abraham Lincoln High School. We schools were right across the street from each other, an intense rivalry, but with a lot of respect. And I was fortunate. Uh, we won the city and state championship my senior year, and we were the number five team in the country. So I played with some real ballers, mm. man. And I grew up loving this game. Like basketball was everything to me from the first time I played CYO ball at 10 years old it was all about basketball and basketball was even though I moonlighted in baseball, basketball was everything, mm -hmm. you know, and I went all over the city and I had great coaches. They took me to different places to see older guys play. So I got to see all of the, the greats play the Mark Jackson's, the Pearl Washington's, the Ross Strickland's I'm coming from that era as a young fellow watching those guys play. So I was heavily inspired by the game. And, of course, Kenny Anderson was, like, a year older than me. And I, I played against him a couple of times. But, man, was I a fan of watching him play. Yeah. He was he – was his crossover, still to this day, I, I marvel at it. Yeah, people think the crossover that Kenny had, it wasn't the front he, – he crossed you up behind the back. Mm. He had the behind-the-back crossover that would drug you. If you go look at his highlights, you'll see that behind the back crossover. A lot of people don't utilize that, but he he had the back behind the back crossover was killer. Yeah, that's a hard skill when you when you're pivoting and you're going the other way and it's going behind the back because people they normally wrap it around. Yes, he did it straight. He's straight. Yeah, exactly. Right. That was yes. crazy. His back. Yeah, man, it was killer. And man. then the only person that I thought was akin to that was Tim Hardaway. He was the only one that could do that. And both of them were the inspiration as to why I. When I played ball, when I did the crossover, I would start with the left hand and then go right. I yeah. wouldn't do it the other way because right. it didn't feel as comfortable as me going left and right. Tim Tim put that thing both ways. forward The forward crossover and that behind-the-back crossover. Tim had him going both ways, man. And, you know, he got skills, as he would say. <laughs> I got skills. Showing your, showing your age, Arthur. Showing your age. Hey, man, listen, man, I am what I am, man. You know, I have no problem with where I'm at in life. And my age, I actually uh, feel really good to be where I'm at right mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. I want to go sure. back to your Howard days because yeah. I saw school days when I was a kid. 
And I was like, <laughs> oh, this is crazy. And then when I went to Hofstra University, I'm like, this ain't this ain't what frats be like. This is no, nah, we got brothers at Hofstra. <laughs> I got no, what, my frat at Hofstra. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, they got Omega Sci-Fi over there and, and, and all them alphas. And my boy Norman Richardson played at Hofstra Word. from Grady High School, man. Word. He was the man out there. Yeah, we, we were around the same age. Okay, so, cool. Uh, but the thing was, like, it didn't have that same... It, it didn't have that same feel, especially, like, when I went to, like, Maryland. I was like, oh, this is... The, Damn, I'm going to a, a weird different college. At school days, you're saying? Yeah. Well, school well days, in terms of pledging, first of all, I pledged at the University of Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Okay, I went to school at American International College right after high school. I went there to play ball, Division Two, and uh, it was in Springfield, Massachusetts. So I was there for two years. That's when I pledged my fraternity. Uh, we were in the cut. We were, you know, you masked, it's in the woods. So it was a different experience. You can get away with a lot of things. I pledged back when pledging was just being disbanded. <laughs> okay. It was just being disbanded. Like, all right, pledging is illegal. But once again, I was in the North, in the, in the woods. They still did it old school style. Mm. So I pledged real old school, you know, in uh, 1992. Yeah. I'm sure my 1992 is when I pledged my frat. I've been in the, <laughs> I've been in the frat for 28 years now. Yeah, man, it was tough, but it wasn't like school days. School days was a joke. Yeah, it was stylized. Yeah, it wasn't. It was. <laughs> it was. They were doing dances. It was a joke, man. Come on, Ralph. Let me tell you something <laughs> right now, man. It was a joke. I'm just saying, school days came out when I was eight, so I was like, what is this? So it was just always in my mind. But the school way it days was. inspired me to mm-hmm. want to pledge. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna lie. You know, thank God for Spike Lee and what he did because it made me want to go to college. First and foremost, you know, it inspired me because I had no family members that went to college. So it definitely inspired me that a different world and the Cosby show. Those things inspired me to want to go to school. But man, seeing school days, I was like, man, I might want to pledge too. Mm-hmm. Man, let me find out what's going on. But I did my homework though and had to find out about the the rich history of Greek letter organizations or black Greek, Greek letter organizations. And I chose Kappa Alpha Psi. It was great. How'd you end up at Howard? Uh, <laughs> you know, I was young. I was chasing a girl um, that I was in love with at the time. Yeah, man. And my ex-girlfriend was going to Howard University. And I went down there and said, I'm not leaving. <laughs> <laughs> I went down there, man, and I was like, I'm not leaving. So uh, we were together. I took off of school for a whole year. I had all plans on going back to Massachusetts. I had my stuff up there and, you know, and I just said, forget it. If I find a job in D.C., I'm staying. I went down there. I found two jobs. (laughs) And I stayed. I applied to Howard, and I snuck in through the back door. Howard is a strong academic institution. I just finished pledging my fraternity. My grades sucked. But they let me in because I had a great interview. Mm. And they believed in me based on how I presented myself. And they gave me an opportunity. Even though academically my grades said I shouldn't have got in. Mm. 
from a, on a transfer scenario. Right, right, right. Because I just pledged in my grade. I mean, when I tell you my grades was horrible, they were, they were bad. Yeah. But they looked at my high school transcript, which was really good, and my SAT scores, which were really good. And so they utilized that and plus my hustle and the fact that I came to D.C. and got two jobs. They looked at all of those things, and they said, we give people chances that do things like that. Wow. So they let me in. Mm. Yeah, yeah backdoored it. You seem like the type of person that, you know, just, just let you in the back door, just as long as you're in the building, you're going to be in the front of the line. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm not going to, if I'm going to go through the back door, believe me, I'm not going to be sneaking around the whole time. I'm going to eventually get a VIP pass and be walking around with my head up like I ain't got to still be sneaky no yeah, more. <laughs> yeah. That's that's where I'm at. And exactly. Just your whole experience of playing in Flatbush and then, you know, playing at Grady, playing in college. What was your perception of officials all that time? I really didn't think about them. That's bugged. And I was the captain. I would be in the captain's meeting and all of that. I never in my career remember getting a technical foul, yelling at a ref, looking at a ref like they was crazy. I didn't even think about them. I thought about opponents and my teammates. I'm being real. I just didn't. The only ref I remember from when I played was John Colson. Of course you did. <laughs> John Colson used to ref my games in high school. So I remembered him, but I didn't remember anyone else. And so, like I said, I didn't really think about officials. I didn't even know how much officials get harassed until I started getting on the court mm. and getting out there and seeing what it was. I didn't even think about it. Mm. And I played for a long time. Ain't well, that much. I, I mean, I'm not surprised because, I mean, we there's either people that are just a malcontent and it's always like, you know, maybe they're not comfortable with themselves and they're not being mm -hmm. self-reflective of what they're doing, right? So, like, man, I just did a flag football game, and this kid, he throws, like, sidearm. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I'm going to get hurt. I'm supposed to be going to the academy. And I was like, why are you yelling at me? <laughs> why are you yelling at me? Right. If you going to the academy in January, why are you playing? Yeah. And if you get hurt, aren't you running the risk of getting hurt? Yeah. You, you made that decision. Yeah, you made that decision. Don't get mad at me. Yeah. And I always, it just was always a weird thing. So knowing that and not even really giving it a thought, what planted the seed for you to start officiating? So I was living in California. As you can see, I'm all over the place, right? I lived in Massachusetts, D.C. So I was living in California. I moved out there. I was out there for like 10 years. I had been working out, going hiking with Stephon Marbury, you know, somebody I've known for a long time. And... I just was really ready to get back into basketball because I had, you know, not divorced, might I say, but I just took some time off, mm. a good break from basketball. And I just wasn't involved in the game at all. But I knew I wanted to get back involved in the game. And, you know, Steph had made a suggestion to me. He was like, yo, you know what? You should think about refing. I was like, me? Ref? He was like, yeah. Because I always saw myself as a coach. Cause my I I consider my knowledge of the game to be super extensive, and you and you got that you got that charisma, you have that command. Like I feel like I want to hang on to you every word. It's like, <laughs> I'm like Ralph over here gassing me, man. Come I'm on, I'm being real. I'm being real. <laughs> I Listen, appreciate man. that. Nah, nah, I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, and and, and I'll say this before you say whatever you're gonna say is that like, dude, I'm so used to people coming here. They're afraid of me, but mm -hmm. I see that you obviously you have radio experience. You. You've been in front of the mic. You 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 know what to do. Yeah. So it's like, I'm just taking the back seat this time. Well, you know, 
the theater and doing studying acting made me comfortable as a referee because there are times as a referee, you got to be on front street, right? You got to go report. Everybody looking at you. They want to know what the, what you about to say. Mm-hmm. I was never afraid of that moment because I had been on the stage, you know? And so that was something I guess that Steph realized. He was like, yo, you'll be good because you're fair. I was like, hmm. I thought about it. And then I thought about it some more. And it took me a while before I decided to go take the class. But I had given it some real thought. But I knew I wanted to get back in the game. And that's what planted the seed. A nice conversation with my boy. He told me a few things. I thought about it. And then I made that decision. I made the leap. And when I took the class, I really realized how much I liked it in the class. Mm. Like during the class because I was like, okay, I want to be good. Man, I can't raise my arm and pop my whistle at the same time. <laughs> Hold on, let me figure right, this out. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Let me figure this out. I, I, I know that's a travel, but I can't get my whistle up. Yet. I did, yeah, my timing was off. Yeah. So I was like, man, I got to get this. This is a real skill you got to have now. I didn't know how much rip officials had to work to get good. Right. You know, so um, that's where it started in California, man. And you probably had it like, yo, I play ball all my life. It can't be that hard. I know what a travel look like until it's time to pull the trigger. And you're like, I don't even know what I'm supposed to present. And that, that happens for like a good, I don't know, 80 games until you start feeling like comfortable. And then all of a sudden mm-hmm. you start meet people that are like real good at it. Real good. And you're like, that's not what my travel look like. Yeah. <laughs> hey, man, I could remember my first game ever. Ever. It was a girls game. Freshman. In California. Neither team could really play. You know how many travels there were? Man, if we called every violation, that game would still be going on. That's how bad it was. I believe it because I'm so on the girls' my, side, so I understand. Me and my partner had to make a decision to stop calling some travels, <laughs> man. Stop calling violations. But we sucked. Let me do that game now. i get that game over with. Bop, bop, bop. Easy breezy, no problem. But I sucked. I was super green. I didn't know what I was doing, even though I knew basketball. Mm. I didn't know what I was doing. I could have made that game go by a lot easier. Mm. And then you have to learn how to manage the game. Right. And so, um, yeah, that was the my humble beginning, I, my first game. But when I moved back to New York, that's when it really started. Mm. That's when it really started, man, moving back to New York City. And then you realize, wait, hold up. They don't play no games out here. You got to be on point. You might be at a park and there's some dudes outside the gate looking at you crazy about your ref, man. You better get that call right. You know what I mean? They might be, you know, smoking some weed, blowing weed on the court, but it's intense. It's serious. It's real. And you got to be ready. Yeah. And I was like, wait, hold up. I got to, I got to really put my, my thing down on Mm. this. I grew up in the game here in New York city. People know me. I'm going to go places and people going to be, oh, your art was going, yo, your, your art, what you doing out there reffing? You horrible. I didn't want that. I did not want that because I grew up and this game raised me. Mm. So I had to do my due diligence to the profession, to the craft, because this game raised me. Mm. So cats, when they see me, they need, oh, hey, whole art ain't playing. He in his ref bag. Like he for real, like he's not playing. He really takes it seriously. Don't come trying to be arting me up. No, I'm referee right now. I'm official. And I'm official, official. 
You know what I mean? And anybody could tell you, when I get on that court and I put on them stripes, I'm professional. Mm. And yeah, I might be nice. And the more I learned and the more I got comfortable, I'm able to speak to people here and there. But they knew, oh man, wait, hold up. Art is really reffing out there. Mm. He ain't playing no games. Mm. So I didn't want people to think I was out here just trying to get money and steal. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. man, I'm out here trying to really do a good job mm. and really get good. And that's all that mattered to me. Yeah. That's easy to do in New York City because it's it's just like it, it's like reverse peer pressure. It's like if you're not taking it serious, then it's like you're the only one that's playing themselves. Yeah, you're you know, because I mean? every everyone out here is not playing, and mm-hmm. just just the whole area, just everyone in New York City is like, damn, he good. I'm gonna steal that. I'm gonna steal that. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna steal that. And we all just make each other better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you mentioned Stefan. And, you know, other mentors that we talked about off here, if you can, list any of your other mentors, what they've done for your career, and how do you think they've shaped the way you've helped people after you? Well, I'm going to start with two people who initially gave me game. So I'm, it's four that initially gave me game. When I first came back to New York, Antonio Brimmer and Earl Robinson gave me my first game at preteen. Here in Bestie, they both made guest appearances to show up at preteen to watch me. And I didn't know who they were. Mm. I didn't know how they looked. I didn't know anything. And let me tell you, they both chewed into me in very different ways mm. right after the game. Why? Because I had come with a strong recommendation. One of my buddies Anton Marchand, who runs the Conrad McRae and the Rose Classic, somebody I knew for a long time, he's the one who put me in touch with um, Antonio Brimmer and Earl to get my first game. Because when I came home, I was like, yo, who do I contact so I can start getting some games? Immediately, not only did they come and watch me, but they started to, you know, mentor me. Very little at that particular time. But I was like, man, I'm not good. I got I to gotta find a way to get good. So but without all this pressure, <laughs> I needed to find a way to just work on my mechanics yeah. and learn the rules and just get comfortable and confident out there on the court. So I started working with an assignment named Tony Hargraves. Tony Hargraves, I love him. Uncle Tone. Tone is, everybody knows him in the basketball community. He runs Riverside Church. He played at Iona. He played against Michael Jordan. Everybody knows Tony. Tony Hargrave is a legend here in New York City. So I started working with Tony Hargrave, but a lot of his work would be uptown or in New Jersey. So I could get away and go away from Brooklyn. Because Brooklyn's tough. Let me and it, it, If you ain't ready, don't ref in Brooklyn. Thanks. It's tough. So I went and I worked on my game for about a year and a half, almost two. I'm not, I'm not even lying to you. And then I text Brimmer and Earl. I said, I'm ready. I'm ready to come back and start working in Brooklyn. And they was like, oh, okay, go here. And then they wanted to see if I was about it. But during that time that I stepped away, I started working with Honey Bun. Everybody knows Honey Bun. He used to coach up at Riverside. He has done a lot of big games. And another gentleman named by the... Ron Eady. Ron Eady teaches the class up in the Bronx and Manhattan. He gets people certified. Ron knows his stuff. He knows all the rules. He's sharp with the mechanics. So 
working with Honey Bun and Ron and being on the court with them and several other referees in the Tony Hargraves camp got me right. And of course, there was some harsh times. You know, Brooklyn ain't the only place that's hard. Other places where I was getting my my feet wet and, and hearing a lot of things and being able to endure and deal with those things. But then when I came back to Brooklyn, I I, I knew I needed to get sharp. Mm. And Heather then stepped in. Heather Brown got me right. Heather Brown stepped in and she saw all, she saw all my weaknesses and she broke me down and built me up and broke me down and built me up. Arnold Saunders, he's another one who believed in me and made some phone calls so that I can get a chance to start moving up and getting some bigger games. So now I got some great officials, you know, that got my back, that believe in me. And, uh, of course, a lot of officials I stole from along the way that I work with. You know, we st- I, st- I stole from a lot of them. Mechanics, you know, just how you move, your presence, things of that nature, how you might speak to coaches. And then I started to add my own little thing to it because, once again, I come from, you know, studying acting and being comfortable in my own skin. So now I know the rules. Now my mechanics are sharp. Let's start going. Let's start mm. doing some things. And then you had to start learning situations on the court and how to deal with them. Mm. Yeah. What 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 kind of advice would you give somebody after? And because, you know, I think you had such a great discernible plan. You met the right people. You knew you were something. Yeah. You know, some people aren't self-aware of that. Yeah. Right. Like some people go like they'll come and, and, and think about it. I live in Long Island. So I'm like, you ain't ready for that smoke yet. Yeah. You know, you handled it. No, nah, no, nah, I'm ready. And they come out here, they'll watch a game and they're like, yeah, I'm not ready. Yeah. You got to be self-aware of that. Mm-hmm. You got to know when you got to break down and then build yourself up. Just like you said that Heather did. Um, and what do you think you learned about yourself in, I guess, helping other people now, now that you know? Um, well, obviously you got to have your own style. I got my own style. I'm my own person. But the information is the same. The information is the same because we have to be on the same page. We have to know the same information on the court when you talk about being partners and things of that nature. So I pass on information based on things that I know from my own testimony that work. And obviously, you know, sticking to the rules and all of the proper things that we all have to do. The the checks and balances, you know. And so, but I always teach from a fun perspective. It's a game. I actually am having fun out there no matter how intense I look because it's basketball. I love it. I love to see a kid cross somebody up and do a move. And then I'm like, and he get fouled. And I'm like, boom, score it. And, and one, and I feel good. Like that, that was that was a good move. That was a good move. <laughs> In my head, I'm like, oh, good move. Oh, but yep, he got hit. Boom, score, score it. Mm. In my head, and I'm looking at it, I'm like, oh, I got the best seat in the house. It's great. We got the best seat in the house. 100% agree. Nobody can see the game better than I can. So not only am I watching what I love, I'm involved still, you know? But I'm involved from a perspective where I add value because I'm coming to do a good job and be professional and handle my business so that they can give a fair shake at the best, may the best team win. Mm. And I don't have nothing to do with the outcome. Even though I've made my mistakes and learned along the way, 
I try to stay out of it mm. and let the best team win. I love it, man. I, Ralph, when I tell you I love it, bro, I love officiating. I love basketball. It means the world to me. But obviously there's bigger things and right. bigger fish to fry. Right, right, right. But it's, it's been amazing, man. Mm. And I, I wouldn't trade it in for the, the like my last eight to ten years. All the great officials I've met. All the great people. Like, a lot of refs are good dudes. Yeah. Good people. Not only dudes, women. I mean, great people. You know, for some reason or another, I guess we're the bearers of fair, of, of, of good, good energy or something, you know, because we come, at least those that care. Because you know there's refs that's paper chasing. We're we not going to act like that's not real. I, I, need, I like to get the money too. I like to get to the money. But I'm not there just to paper chase. I'm there to actually be good and be professional. Mm. And those refs that you find that care in that manner, man, I met some great, some great people. I love the officiating community. Me too. Me too. That's that's one of the reasons why I built this because, you know, I think we're in such a unique region. Mm-hmm. And I always wanted to show somebody in like Texas, Arizona, <laughs> be like, this is what it's like. And, and you know, having said that, you played a Grady. Yeah. You know what that double A smoke like. Yeah, of course. And pound for pound, I think across the country, you know, I don't I haven't reffed in a lot of places, but I know one thing's for damn sure. That double A Brooklyn Queens, mm-hmm. something serious. You, if you ain't ready for that, just like you said, I wanna know uh-huh. how different is it from when you play to how it is now? Do you think it's better? Man, Ralph, man. <laughs> I can't believe you you put me in this position. <laughs> I just want to. You hear put it. me in this position. Listen to my era. Listen to my era. Shawnell Scott, Jamal Mashburn, Kenny Anderson, Rob Phelps, Ephraim Whitehead, Khalid Reeves, Derek Phelps, Dave Edwards, Ant Peel. <sighs> I don't want to miss nobody. Arthur my era. My, please, <laughs> my era was, yo, we talking about some legends. Yeah. I don't know if I'm officiating legends right now. I can't say that. When I go to some AAU camps and stuff like that, and I've run into some ball players, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. But in New York City, now, even though the games are tough and the environments are tough and I'm not going to say that they have better players now than when I was playing during my era. I mean, I can't forget my man Lamont Jones, who was killing at Brooklyn Tech. God rest his soul, Conrad McCray. This is my era. Like, we're talking about, like, some heavy hitters in basketball. I'm not saying that the city has that type of talent, but we have a rare few. But back then, we had so many more. Mm. You know, and then I just named the All-Americans. I didn't even name the mid-level players, quote unquote, that were really good during my era. But there are a lot of hungry ball players nowadays. I watch the younger kids. I still like reffing eight and nine-year-olds and 10-year-olds because you see their thirst for wanting to be good, yeah. some of them. And especially if they coach properly. Yeah. Young man by the name, they call him Magic Mel, uptown. You know, his father's heavily involved. He got an older brother. Man, that, that young boy balling, man. That boy can play. Now, 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 now we're talking about, like, because 
Kenny, Kenny Anderson was a legend when I came in the game at 11. He was already like, oh, it's Kenny Anderson. Magic Mel is probably the kid right now that I could say people talk about him since he was like a little, like really little. I don't, you know, and a lot of guys, some guys get good at 15, 16. Some guys be good from 10, 11 when they first pick up a ball and then make legendary status. I can't say I've seen a lot of that, but in this era, but during my era, man, it was guys who were good from a long, from 10, 11, 12, 13, and they never stopped being good mm. and just got better. Mm. Man, when I played with Jamal Mashburn in middle school, I'm like, he's the center. He get the rebound and he dribble up the court and take it full. I'm like, yo, back in the days, the center used to have to give it up to the guard. <laughs> Not Jamal Mashburn. He get the rebound and he already had the handle and he's he's the biggest guy on the court. And I'm like, Damn, can't do nothing about that. Man, special. Mm. Yeah, brother. Yeah. I don't think we have those type of players right now. I'm sorry. Nah, no disrespect good. to this, this, this era. Just listening to your story about how much you care about your era, that you want to preserve that, <laughs> and just your passion of, of officiating and enjoying mm-hmm. having that front row seat. Mm-hmm. Do you think that your passion for officiating eclipsed anything you've felt playing basketball? That's a tough question. That's a tough question. You know, officiating is personal, even though we accrue out there. Basketball, I'm just such a team guy, and I just loved my teams. So I can't say that anything in officiating could ever possibly eclipse winning the city championship at Madison Square Garden. We're talking about growing up in New York City, the Mecca, the Garden, winning the city championship there, running out on the court and celebrating, then going upstate and winning this. We wasn't done winning the state championship. I don't think anything that I could do in refereeing could be better than beating Lincoln. Just beating Lincoln when I was a senior and dominating them, that was everything. You know what I mean? I In term, as a player, comparing... Pl- hey, man. Butch Beard, the great legendary Alfred Butch Beard who played for the Golden State Warriors, played at Louis. He was the coach at Howard. I had to walk on at Howard. And he picked me. He liked me. This was Butch Beard. I, I, he used to commentate for the New York Knicks and the Nets, I think, back in the days. And he now was my coach at Howard. So I don't think anything as a referee could eclipse playing. You know, that's just a different level. But I do really have some great moments as a ref. And I'm sure I'll have some more great moments. Maybe something might happen that might eclipse it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If I, I get gonna... an NCAA championship game <laughs> or one day, I don't know. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into that. But um, after everything you said, what do you think of the attributes? What do you think it took to get to where you were at this moment in time, just as a great person and, of course, as an official? Focus. Passion. Being open-minded. Humble. Being humble. Humility. Confidence, too, you know, is super important. Just being able to be who I am. Mm. Like, not toning down myself at all. And that's important when you're able to walk in your own skin and be who you are and not be afraid to be who you are. A lot of people are. 
That's what I that's what I think I gravitate towards you the most, because I think we're not only officials, but united in a sense of like I have a deep sense of self mm-hmm. and I'm unapologetic of how I am. Right. And I'm not saying I'm trying to ruffle any feathers. Yeah. I'm just saying I'm not going to be. You know, I'm the leader yeah. and you're the leader yeah. and I'm cool with that. Give me give me two leaders on the court with me and we're going to officiate a great game. Yeah. And we should have no issues. Mm hmm. What do you think it's going to take to get to where you want to go? And ultimately, where do you want to go? Um, so ultimately, I definitely want to be a Division One referee. Right now, I'm on the Division Three level in JUCO. Um, but I definitely believe that I have what it takes to do, do Division One basketball. Guys that play Division One basketball, obviously, I ref them in AAU in high school, so I know how to handle the players and talk to them and. You know, I've refereed some intense men's leagues here in New York City. If you know and understand what those intense men's leagues can be like, I would hope that the NCAA Division One is not nowhere even close. Yeah. Meaning is, you got to worry about whether you're going to get out of there safe as a referee. Right. Okay? So, I've refed in some intense men's leagues where... I was concerned, maybe, that if I didn't handle my business, it might be tough for me to leave the building. Mm. Imagine refereeing under that type of pressure. I will hope that, I would never think that in college basketball, I had to worry about whether or not I was going to leave there safely. So that makes me believe that I could ref on that level because I'm not worried about that. But in some intense men's leagues, Man, listen, man, listen, it ain't for the week. No, it ain't for the week. And let me tell you, when you got guys and you show up and they say, oh, we got a good ref today. And it's that type of men's league. (sighs) You feel relief, man. Like, oh, man, they like me. Let me make sure I don't do nothing to change that. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So then I would say no disrespect to the Division One basketball, but I'm not worried about. You know, getting punched in the face. Yeah. I'm not worried about somebody trying to meet me at my car. It's it's college. Yeah. You know, I'm that 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 that's the type of thought process I put around it where I could say it's less pressure. Yeah. So I, I know I can get there. I completely feel you. My I first started with um adult league softball. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they getting drunk. <laughs> <laughs> they, they they all want to play American Idol on my strike zone. Yeah. I've been in this league for 20 years. I ain't never seen you. You don't even know what you're doing with your, with your strike zone. I had no words. And yeah. when you learn that way, you just like, I remember my first school game. I'm like, this is it. Yeah. I don't got to deal with nobody else yelling at me. Oh, I'm yeah. good. I'm good. And and you're so right. That that adult league effect. But it's interesting when you hear, you know, that's per, that's somebody's first experience as opposed to like, I do school games. And then you go into the adult league and you're like, oh, this, nah, I don't want this. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's like, that's a weird dichotomy that, some referees experience, but you know, having said that talking about those sticky situations, what is the most sticky situation that you've ever had as a basketball player? And what is the most sticky situation that you've ever had as a basketball official? As a player, it was sticky when we, it was my senior year. Um, I'm on the free throw line, five seconds left in the game. We down by one point and we're playing against Bishop Lachlan high school. We're undefeated at this point. My starting point guard, who wound up playing at 
St. John's University, Maurice Fresh Brown, he was hurt. So he didn't play. And so, you know, he was an important factor to us being able to do what we do. So now here I am. I started that game. And I didn't start my senior year. I was the sixth man because that's how good my team was. It was that good. And so now I'm on the foul line with five seconds left. We down by one point. I made the first free throw. One of my really good friends is in the stands. And he says some BS to me to try to throw me off that only some of your friends could say to you because they know you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm, it's quiet. And then he says some BS. And he's the only one I can hear. And you know exactly what he's talking about. And I missed that second free throw. And that second free throw would have put us up by one. And we could have won the game, right? My center gets the rebound, goes back up. Boom. He misses. We go to overtime. We lose. Our only loss of the season. I was a senior. I had to live with that. That was my sticky situation as a ball player. I dealt with it. It bothered me for a long time because that was our only loss. And you feel but, like you were responsible for that. But what if we don't lose that game? We could have lost somewhere else. But mm. we learned how to deal with the, a loss. We didn't let it knock us. We knew we, we were better than that. And we pushed forward and we didn't lose for the rest of the year. Mm. So, it, you know what I mean? We, we accomplished what we wanted to. So I was able to work myself out of that. But as a young person... Now, because you're talking about me being a young man at right. that time, a teenager. Right. Man, that was a lot to deal with, man. Yeah. So then now, fast forward as a referee, and you say sticky situation, I'm telling you sticky situation where I refereed in this park in Bed-Stuy, man. And, I'm, and let me tell you, I got cursed out by everybody, even an 11-year-old kid. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, God, I got to get out of here. Right. And I was hoping I made it home safe. Mm. That was sticky. I no league games, no, you know, PSAL or Catholic game or co- none of those games could be more sticky than worrying about whether or not you're going to make it home safe out of the park. And that was the stickiest man. Like I said, the twelve year old kid cursing me out, man. Like, hold up. Get up out of here. <laughs> and Ralph, man, I was like, yo, let me get my money and let me get up out of here quick. Where that 12-year-old, I got to get away from him. Let me get up out of here, man. Sticky, man. <laughs> What's really funny is that I recorded with Rob Moses today, too. Okay. And he was talking about his undefeated season at Cardoza, and they ended up losing oh. at the end. And I coach volleyball in Long Island, mm-hmm. I've had about three or four undefeated seasons only to lose in the championship game. And I'm a Ravens fan. So last year when they got yeah. smacked up by the Titans, I, I said this from day one. I was like, I need three losses because that 15-1, and one, you can't roll into the Super Bowl feeling good about it. Right. Because if you're down by 13 points and there's six minutes left in the fourth quarter, you don't know how to act. That's why I always feel like when those undefeated teams go – they need to take an L in a regular season type situation because you don't want to have that type of pressure, you know, mm-hmm. because, again, you're kids, right? Yeah. So when you when you synthesize that in, in that time, in that moment in time as a kid, mm-hmm. just like you said, it ate at you. It ate at you. Mm-hmm. So I always say it's better to lose and experience the losing, and that way it's more meaningful. And it's better to be that than undefeated. And, in fact, my volleyball team last year, we played St. Anthony's in the championship game, and they were 18-0. Wow. 
So I feel for them, but I don't feel for them that much. <laughs> Yo, you know what, Ralph, man? That's so real. You know how many times I shot those free throws over and over and in my head? Over and over. Like, I would be on the line and it'd be one of... You know how many times... Man, I'm such a good free throw shooter because of that right now. Right now, I can... I mean, I could, I'm wet from the, from the free throw line because of that scenario. Yeah. Because I went and I shot the free th- over and over. I had to make two in a row. I would make one. I would pause because the team called the timeout to ice me out. I come back and I miss it. And I would do that to myself and put myself through these psychological scenarios to see if I could make these free throws. I would be unsuccessful sometimes, but for the most part, I became even more because I just became so much better at shooting free throws. Ain't that something that I psychologically put myself through that over missing one free throw? Yeah, well, at the same time, it's like it's it's okay, man. It's it's all right. <laughs> it's all right, it's exactly. All right. It, and I had to realize yeah. that it was all right, and that was my sticky situation. That yeah. reminds me of like um, I remember when Tim Duncan won his last championship, two thousand fourteen. He was like, "The championship makes it okay from last year." I was like, "That's a, that's a good attitude," because they, you know, when they lost to the Heat and yeah. the way they lost in that type of fashion. Oh yeah, that's some that's a real psychological pain. Oh yeah, you know, what I mean, I can't even watch that Ray Allen thing. I. <laughs> I wasn't feeling the heat back then, but you know, back to you. Conversely, what is your best moment as a basketball player? What is your best moment thus far as a basketball official? My best moment as a basketball player, on the from a personal note, was to be on the varsity team at Grady in the tenth grade. It was a tough thing to do, but to be a sophomore and to make the varsity team. There was this Spanish kid named Boba. Man, Boba could play. And I know, I don't know why they picked me over Boba. I think Boba was better than me. He had better skills, his handle, he could shoot better than me. I played great defense. Man, I mean, I, mean, I was a dog. I played great defense. And I just had leadership skills, you know? And and I think the coaches may have said they made the right choice because my sophomore year, I won a few games for us, you know? And I should never doubt myself. But at the same time, I felt like that might have been it for me. That also, and when I made the Gauchos, and when I made the Gauchos, and matter of fact, the coach from the Gauchos just hit me for my birthday, Dave McCullough. Everybody knows him. He is the coach of all coaches that coach at the Gauchos. And Dave hit me recently to tell me happy birthday. But Dave told me why I made that team. He said, I can't have everybody in the team that's 30-point scorers. I need some tough guys. I need some people that hard work. I need some guys that's going to push the other guys in practice. I need some guys that's going to come in and make the most out of whatever minutes I give them. And that was me. And so me making that team, there was pros on that team. Mm. Once again, Jamal Mashburn, Shawnell Scott, he played for Portland. Shawnell played at St. John. These were pros that I played with at the Gauchos. And so me making the Gauchos and then making my varsity high school team in the 10th grade, those were probably the biggest things for me as a basketball player. Mm. Ref, I don't know if I did that just yet. But I am definitely very thankful that I've been able to uh, 
in a short period of time do a city championship in the PSAL. In the Catholic League, you know, they graced me with uh, some really intense playoff games and semifinal games, like right out the gate of me being, because I guess I was getting a lot of respect from coaches and my peers and I, the assigners noticed. And, uh, you know, they threw me into some big games early that they generally don't give guys. And I, I, I feel so humbled, but I still don't think I've reached that point yet because I got so much more to accomplish. And right now I'm, I'm hungry to get back on the court because I really feel like I've evolved a great deal in my skill set as an official and my ability to manage a game. And I learned a lot, like mistakes that I would make. I know I'm not going to make them again mm. because I remember coverage areas, making sure I might get a call when my partner might not have got it and not be afraid to go grab that call because it was good for the game. And it was still in my, it might've been my secondary, you know, not my primary, but my secondary coverage, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm so geeked and looking forward to what I could do because of where I'm at right now. And then I'm in the gym. I'm where I just, I'm just charged right now. I, mm. I, you know, I, I look forward to what I could accomplish. Yeah. I don't think I've gotten there yet. Yeah, I got you. And, and I told you off air, I know you were reluctant in the beginning to be honest, but now you realize how cathartic this was that you were able to do this for, you it's know what great. I'm saying? It's great to release and to talk about it because I haven't really been talking about officiating that much even though I did go to a camp over the summer and I have been talking to some people a little bit here and there. Yeah, it was good. And when you, when you, when you say, Hey, let's do this. I'm like, yes, let's do this. Mm. Because now I was able to step back. You got perspective. Yes. I got, I gained perspective. That's what I didn't have before. Cause right. I was so in it. Right. Right. We were all in it. Yes, exactly. So now um, that I have perspective and I'm able to say, Hey man, wait a minute. You you come a long way. Yeah. You got some things to talk about. You know, you've been through some battles. You've been through some things. You know, uh, it, it, it's it been good. It's been a lot of great, a mm. lot of positivity, you know, and a lot of passion and love and, you know, uh, a lot of good people. A lot of good people. I have some great people that I've met through officiating that they might, I love them. Yeah. Like, you you know, it's a, it's a great bond and a great, community you know and uh those are the things that i actually miss at this particular time even though we we talk you know but we're not together right i miss being on the court obviously but uh you know we're gonna get back there yeah my final two questions for you is you know things are, are, are completely spiking things are kind of open here yeah but it's getting cold so I, I just don't see this outdoor stuff happening when it's like 40 degrees. I, I don't know. I'm not yeah. a predictor, but it, it, it just doesn't seem like they're going to buy $8,000 um, space heaters. So <laughs> I, I don't know how that's going to work. Right. <laughs> if you had a prediction when you think school is going to go off. I actually think January, for real. I think that, you know, some people are just trying to wipe 2020 out of their mind yeah. and I guess when you hear a different number of 2020, it might give people a fresh perspective to say, okay, maybe things are better now. I don't know. But everything is pointing towards January. You know, even uh, my college assigner said January would be the time of uh, potential games starting. So I see 
even though we had a meeting recently in the Catholic League that said it could be late November. Um, I haven't heard anything recently, though. Yeah, right? man, we had a late November conversation about Catholic, but in the PSAL, nothing. Nothing. January is where they looking like... Like, where are we going to find out? Yeah, like, we might. But I think that... Well, I'm at, I'm at school. I work at a school. I work at a private school. We're actually in the building. You know, we practice in a lot of safety things at our school, and uh, it's been going well. But overall, I just look at January as when we might be really back open. But gyms are starting to open back up. You know, they got the gaucho round ball up at the gaucho gym. They're playing indoors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Even though this last weekend I did some game, a game outside, it was like 65 to 70 degrees and it wasn't that bad. It was okay. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to go far. I was right here in Williamsburg. But I think that we'll be back on the court soon. Cases are spiking, but I think that they are really looking at whether or not people are passing. Mm -hmm. And then also I think that um, with new, you know, medical advancement in terms of how to deal with COVID-19, I think that uh, we'll be fine because I think that more people will be able to survive and not have it be so severe. Yeah, so. we just have to have that happy medium of figuring out how we can coexist this because it doesn't seem like it's going to go away, so... Hope we figured that out. Yeah. My final question to you is, just listening to your story, I just want to tell you that this has definitely been top 10. I've done hundreds of these. I really enjoy your spirit. Thank I, you, man. I, I hope we stay in touch, like, for real, for real. Because, hey, no like, problem, Ralph. Real, recognize real. And I just, I want to talk about some other things, like, outside of officiating. Because <laughs> you my man and all that. All right, that's what's up, man. Basketball has given you so much. Right. You've traveled so many places. You've played so many great players. You were a great player yourself. You played at the Garden and won a championship. I mean, come on, man. That That is, that's nah, big time. It like, is. That's, that's big time. You've been able to officiate. In the PSAL, one of the greatest, arguably one of the top leagues across the country. No mm -hmm. doubt about it. Service that. Got so many relationships. I mean, you on this podcast, you're able to tell your story because of basketball. Mm -hmm. What does basketball mean to you? What is it given to you in your life? Basketball is love, man. Basketball raised me. Basketball was my father. That was who raised me. Those were my fathers, my basketball coaches. I didn't have a pops. My coaches, them guiding me, them taking me places, them giving me lessons that didn't actually resonate until I got older, but they kept me straight and narrow. It made me want to go to college, get out of the neighborhood, go try to learn and advance myself. And it was all because of basketball. Basketball is love. I don't know what made me do it, but at 10 years old, I saw some boys standing in front of Holy Innocence Church. I said, what y'all doing? I didn't know them. I don't know why I was so curious. I was like, yo, what y'all doing? What's going on? Oh, yeah, with basketball trials. If I didn't make that move, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today. Yeah. Because that's what made me decide to get involved in basketball. And it's been love ever since. Mm. You know what I'm saying? One of my best friends who's like my brother, I met him at that point at 10 years old. I'm the godfather of his kids. He's the godfather of mine. We, it's love. That's always been love. Mm -hmm. And that's why, like I said, when I traveled the city and referee, I said, I can't be whack because people know me. Yeah. And people be like, yo, oh, you terrible. Yo, bro, what you doing now? 
I love it too much to do that to the game. So it's always love for me. Mm. And, you know, that's why I came back to the game because I loved it so much and I needed to get back to doing something that I loved. Mm. And so that's what basketball is to me. Basketball is love. Yeah. And special shout out to Fabian. I remember when I saw him right before, once he had his twins, we were talking about you and I was like, man, I I can't wait to finally, you know, really get a chance Mm -hmm. to speak to you and, you know, it was all worth the price of admission, man. I thank you. <laughs> My man, Fabian. We would have great conversations in the Yo. after games and before games. Fabian's a good dude, man. Very good dude. Yeah, man. We started together and hopefully we all grow together. Okay. You know what I'm saying? But I thank you. Any final words you want to say before we part ways? Hey, man, you know, Ralph, I appreciate you for doing this. And I thank you so much. I'm humbled, by the way, also because you once again, this is a thing where you only as good as your last call. Yeah. You know, and to be recognized by my peers and for my peers to say great things about me or to notice that there's something going on that I'm doing that's right, that means a great deal to me because that's just how I try to live my life. I try to do the right. That's why I teach. I give back, you know, like being inspirational and being a motivator to other people doing great things. And so... Um, I appreciate you for allowing me to speak my truth and, you know, being patient with me also, by the way, and, you know, allowing me to come on your show. And I've listened to several, you with my man, Sean, Sean is my brother in refereeing, you know, Desmond is my brother in refereeing, you know what I'm saying? I got some guys that are my brothers. Harif is my brother. You know, those are my brothers in refereeing. And I got other brothers also, you know what I'm saying? Londell Hartfield, another one. You know, my man Sam Cooper. These are like my brothers in refereeing because we we just grow together and we talk about all kinds of things. I have so many other referee people, but, you know, I just wanted to, you know, make sure that those names got put out there because <laughs> if they listen to this, I wanted to name drop them because they are my peoples, you know, and... uh I, I, I have so much love for a lot of people, man. Shout out to my man, Lee Church. Um, that's another one of my brothers in, in refereeing. I mean, I, I know I'm going to miss some names. And if they hear this, ah, I'm sorry. But, you know, no disrespect to nobody, man. I'm, it's always love, man. And that's how I feel, Ralph. I'm going to end it with that. I appreciate man. that, man. And and it's good that you did that because that that's like my podcast effect. People be like, yo, he didn't mention me on the pod. I was like, it's getting that serious? It's getting that serious? <laughs> like, and that's not why I made it, but that's kind of cool. And, you know, October 20th is your birthday. Yes. Whenever this drops, you're going to have your little pod day and it's all going to feel like your birthday. You'll see. Oh, man, I appreciate <laughs> that, man. Thank you so much once again, man. Love. My man. For Arthur my Lee man. Walker, this is Ralph the Ref. This is The Brand. We are signing out. Peace. Peace.